victim. Mike, Mike, come here. How you feeling, Faker? I'm feeling fine. Look, I've got something really you know, important to tell you. You got 69,000 on asteroids yesterday, but he pulled the plug. Look, remember the goblin? You're so lame, Elliot. Come on, Michael, he came back. He came back? He came back? Oh, my God! Hello there and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio and this is episode 82. 82. That's the year I was born. I was going to say, wasn't that the year you were and born? And we got, I think, a 1982 movie. Oh, wow. To talk about this week. So That's exciting. Everything's lining up. I'm making interlocking finger gesture on the air. So, you know. Oh, oh look at Listen. Ooh. Interlocking. <laughs> Interlocking finger just careful. We're not going to become an ASMR podcast. What's that even mean? I don't know. I actually, Alternate sleep method recording. I looked it up on my phone recently, and I didn't get a clear answer. Huh. We're we're recording this a little late. We uh, yeah, we both just went to see um, the director's cut of Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built. We're not going to talk about that on this episode. We're gonna. We're going to do a, its own separate episode, a little Which bonus action. Might be, well, it might come out before this or after this. Maybe, but we'll see. It will pop up on your feeds. But one of the things that you should note is that we um, weren't, we were just, we might take a little warming up because yeah. it's, it was a lot to, to digest in that movie. Not, it was a packed not house, too, which was in a good way. confusing. That's confusing. And they seem to enjoy themselves a lot more than I think they probably should, should have, have, which yeah. was confusing also. A lot, of, a lot of confusion about that. So, um, But you know what I'm not confused about? That's where I was going, Mario. How good I am at segues. <laughs> um, beer. Particularly East Rock Brewing. Another good old East Rock Brewing beer. They're black lager. Sounds like they're starting to get into the winter. I think they're on the same wavelength as us. Mm. Maybe they're listeners. Are they? listeners, probably. You should ask likely. them. Uh, this is apparently a luscious, full-bodied black lager with notes of creamy caramel, coffee, and dark chocolate. So basically everything you would expect in a black lager. They could have said, this black lager tastes like a black lager. Black lager. It smells kind of chocolatey. Got a little... Ooh, that's, little that is caramel. Mm. Well, that's that's nice. a delightful smell. Yeah, all right. Let's, let's touch these. I like that movie we just saw. <laughs> there was no delightful smells there. Oh, could you imagine if that had been a William Castle project? Mm. Like, imagine Lawrence von Trier, the house that Jack built, presented by William Castle. Why would that be good? It wouldn't be. Just imagine. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a good thing. Okay. Well, you know what? I was the head dead in my head. I didn't really actually taste the beer. Also, I have a little pepper turkey still in my mm. mouth. That's good. That's tasty. No, I think it is, yeah. I think. I don't know yet. I'm mm. drinking it again. Mmm. Oh, that's delicious. It's a... Uh, yeah, you got the coffees. There's a lot of... um. Like a porter, porter or stout note, but not with that heaviness in the body of a porter or stout. It's very, mm. sm- I don't want to necessarily say smooth, mm. but it's, it's it's light tasting. It's a very light kind of It's like a carbonated. Mouthfeel? Yeah, it's like a carbonated dark chocolate milk chocolate, which yeah. normally would be gross, but this actually tastes really, really good. 
No, no, it tastes it tastes phenomenal. I enjoy it. I'm almost, almost falling out of my seat here. Goodness gracious. <laughs> he likes it so much. I wasn't on the edge of my seat for the movie we just saw, but I'm on the edge of the seat for this beer. Yeah, this is um East This Rock. might be my favorite East Rock brewing they're beer doing, so far. They're doing a good job. We gotta tap this, by the way. This is good. Luckily we have uh two two more each of these to enjoy. Yeah. Because I think we're gonna have a little lengthy conversation on the one movie that we both saw. Um well, Tom saw it this past week. I saw it actually opening weekend, uh, and that is Steve McQueen's Widows. Tom, you saw it most recently. Maybe you wanted to talk about the movie. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm I'm looking at our sound. I'm, I'm in a sound phase. Um, yes, I, I hope that hope that stays. I did. Oh, I'll leave it. Good. Um, I did see Widows. You have no idea, do you? Or did you choose not to know? Your husband stole $2 million from me. This is about my life. This is about my life. And because it's about my life, it now becomes about yours. I saw it on Monday, 9.50 in the morning. It was a sleepy time. Pack, pack house? No. Was Everyone was there. like five other people. It was, it was pretty good. Um, yeah, Widows is uh, written and directed by... Co-written. Yeah, directed by Steve McQueen, um, who did 12 Years a Slave and Shame and Hunger, and uh, co-written by Steve McQueen and Jillian Flynn, who did most, most recently Sharp Objects and... Did she do the screenplay Gone for that? Girl. It was her book. Yeah, I think yeah. she did do the screenplay for it. She um, might, I think she might have done the screenplay for... She yeah. definitely did the screenplay for... Gone Girl. I'm almost positive that. I will look that up while you talk about it. Regardless, she's uh, was a co-writer on this project. Um, oh, nope. She she did write the Gone Girl adaptation. There you go. Um, you got your some uh, cinematography by Sean Baba. It's edited by Joe Walker. You got a Hans Zimmer score, which actually is pretty understated for a Hans Zimmer score. It is, score. but it's there's some moments in there where you're like, this is a Hans Zimmer score. Yeah, yeah, but it comes. Uh, it does a nice job accenting things instead of shoving your face in its own body. No, definitely. I don't know if that's so much of doing a Hans Zimmer and not Steve McQueen, but you think he gave him some loud, very pointed music, and he's just like, <laughs> Steve McQueen's is like, no, <laughs> I don't know what to do with this. Um, tells the story of uh, Veronica Rawlings, played by Viola Davis. She is married to. Harry Rawlings, played by Liam Neeson, and Harry and his gang of criminals. Including the Punisher. Oh, yeah. John Bretherall and just a weird, short, low role. Um, Not really that weird. They get involved in a failed heist of um, Jamal Manning, uh, who is a local, I don't know, I don't want to say crime lord, boss, you know. He's, he's definitely a small-time crime boss, played by uh, Brian Tyree Henry. Who's excellent yeah. in this movie. Well, I don't think there's... Many um, failed performances in this well, movie. Well, this is actually one of the things I wanted to say, and I'll say it right now, is I've never lobbied, I've never had to lobby anyone for anything, but I've never hoped that a group of people or any person would win a SAG award in my life. But if this collection of people doesn't win oh. a SAG for best, for the, you know, best, uh, for more, the best picture, best cast... For the uh, best ensemble, be yeah. A, a crash winning an Oscar like travesty. Unless the mule is... That great of a film? No, even it didn't show up on the National Board of Review because it hasn't been screened yet. That's how good the mule. That's how you know. Is. That's how you know a movie's good. Yeah, when I mean. Mary Poppins returns, has the the ability to show up, but not the mule. Um, 
I think I think when I talked about when I talked about wildlife a couple of weeks ago, I said that it was um, an almost perfect movie. You did, yeah. They just did everything right. Um, I in your best Brett Easton Ellis review ever. I was trying so hard to make it simultaneously both Brett Easton Ellis and not Brett Easton Ellis, so I will cop to that like, <laughs> immediately. Um, I actually think this is kind of a perfect film. Um, I don't. I'm kind of amazed by it. It did yeah, everything I, I wanted a movie to do. It didn't hedge. I'm actually disgusted by all the people, like all the reviews I've read that are obsessed with calling it a heist movie. Which it is. It is not. Um, it just makes me want to die because it's very clearly not a heist movie. But I also get angry when I see that, um, you know, someone like Richard Brody at the New Yorker said, like, they, Steve McQueen grafted, I mean, he gave it a positive review, but he said he grafted politics onto a heist movie, and this is not a political movie either. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a very human drama about very human people doing, um, trying to live in, you know, our current, our current culture and our current climate, and it uses the heist as a vehicle to elaborate elaborate on <clears throat> the Byzantine nature of what it means to live in a city, like no. you know, especially a city like Chicago. Um, I, I'm, and I have a lot of thoughts about it. I'm, I'm interested to hear. We haven't, I know you said you loved it. Um, I'm interested to hear what you loved about it. I don't know. I, it's, it's in the same vein of this. Is, is, it is a perfect film. I mean... Even looking down at like the base heist narrative, which feels like Gillian Flynn wrote it and Steve McQueen wrote the meat of the film, mm-hmm. um, you know that's sound. That's I think it's a sound. What elements involve the heist are are incredibly well done. Um, there's there's definitely notes and twists that are highly predictable. As in the the turn was kind of telegraphed from the first moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, you you very rarely see right now I think in current film a lot of the component parts work so well together but with such understatement um you know I, I take it aback and I, and I think the second I truly realized that I was so endeared to this movie was uh Daniel Kalil's uh Jetami character um when he's in the gymnasium and there's that single take 360 shot while he's watching him yep and and obviously he's supposed to be a foreboding character like it's supposed to be a a moment of his kind of malice and menace but it's so understated in that moment Mm. like he gets close yeah there's like an intimidation factor that's there but steve mcqueen blocks it so well and, and knows his actor's so well that he just allows that moment to breathe on its own. And there's a lot of that in this film of just breathing on its own. He kind of lets it be a natural vessel. Well, I think that's a really, I mean, that's an excellent gold star scene to start on. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting in the sense that, you know, he asked these two guys who were supposed to be, who are essentially responsible for, the you know, Harry Rollins being able to, um, pull off this heist. They were watching the money. I guess they were in the building when the money was taken. Blah blah blah. Um, they were wrapping 
they were, you know, being held in this kind of container and they were rapping and the guy brings him out and they're circling him and he makes him, you know, he makes him rap again. And he fumbles the first time through. And then he gets in his groove. Yeah. And he's, the camera's spinning. And even the beatboxer kind of like fumbles and then gets into yep. the groove. And then And that's not like pointed, it's not pointed at you. It just, it just is. It just happens. Right. And it's not like there's a beat or anything to that. No. It just continues on. Exactly. And that's, and I think that space that you're talking about is in the fact that Steve McQueen lets this thing expand till the point where it's good and then he shoots him in the head. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's just, and it's that much more jarring and it says so much about this character and these and characters. And the world they live yes, in. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and I think that's one of the, the just mind-bogglingly excellent things about this movie and it's talked, I mean, this scene is talked a lot about um, you know, when Jack Mulligan played excellently by Colin Farrell, who's on... Man, do you remember SWAT? Remember when when Colin Farrell did SWAT and people were like... Remember when he did Miami Vice? Yeah. But people were like, this guy's not a good actor. And all mm. of a sudden, Martin McDonald got a hold of him and was like, shape the fuck yeah, up. Yeah, no. Um, where, you know, he's giving that um, speech in front of that kind of like... You know, yeah, the minority women, at, the minority women at work, sort yeah. of thing. Just that um, long single time. And that guy is giving that reporter is giving him shit about the you know the the train line kickbacks that he was supposedly gotten, and he gets in his he gets in his car, and you don't see him say anything, but you hear him talking to his campaign manager as the car cycles through the streets, and you see how that area of Chicago has been gentrified. To include these like gorgeous mansions with yards and you know fences and security things, just so he could barely touch the ward. He's exactly he's just like there, just like right for, there for decades, um, or his family has been. And it's a. And I mean, I didn't actually read any reviews of it until after I saw the movie, and um, it's just a breathtaking scene, and you kind of almost can't believe because that they're so, doing it. It's so it's, audi- so, it's like, so audacious. It's audacious and layered, in the sense of. You know, he has that malaise and that kind of like sense of doldrumness that his campaign manager, you know, so expertly beats out of him mm-hmm. when he's talking about how he just wants to kind of give up. And then she's like, you know, shape the, stop being a pussy. Yeah, Like yeah. literally stop being a pussy is what she says to mm-hmm. him. Um, and so they're talking about the minutia of, of what these kinds of people, you know, who have been so engendered in power in a city like this forever. You know, they, t- they, they speak and you see this just in any major city. Um, with, with like kind of like the local political machine, uh, where they focus in the the self, and also in like their small little pet projects that don't mean anything when the bigger problem outside of them is glaring, right? You know, and that is the focus of of the visual scene is you know you see degradation, you see how in terrible shape those kind of um, row houses are, mm-hmm. and instead of fixing that problem, instead of actually doing something for those people, you know, they just are now encroaching and taking it over for their own means. Right. And it's, it's about pretending to care. Cause he's a character who pretends to well, care. I don't know. I, the thing. I think he was a really complex character because I actually think he does care, but I also think he cares. I think he cares where his father played, um, awkwardly, but I think effectively by Robert Duvall, um, really only cares about maintaining power. I think um, 
Colin Farrell's Jack kind of cares about both things. He understands what it means to have the power and what it means to have this kind of legacy. But he's also thinking that there is something that can be done with that legacy. So well, the putting women, the the minority women at you know at work or whatever having, the name a, of it having is, a young woman campaign manager is is a good idea. But then he also is getting kickbacks from those businesses in well, cash, which they're just hoarding to use for campaign funds and you know to have money and to be able to manipulate power. And that is an interesting thing I took back from this um, mostly is just that that really it, I think there's it feels like a, a very strong interesting argument on establishment Democrats versus kind of the new wave Democrats that were kind of coming up and like how, how the, the, the party itself is shifting because mm-hmm. you get the idea they never explicitly say it but you get the idea that Mulligan's a Democrat yes. you know kind of like a uh, generational sort of JFK even though this is Chicago um, and this is set against the backdrop of 2008 you know you see a few times the the barack obama hope signs yep um it's never really spoken outwardly but you you see you see them in the background uh and there's that great speech by jack um where you know he kind of has had enough of of his father of of tom and goes you know i I look forward to the day where i don't have to speak to people like you because you'll be gone Mm -hmm. um that's something I, I really took from this, and I loved. Like that scene's amazing. I love that scene, um, just because of the fact that there is this conflict. You know, he he lives in these two worlds: this this world of um, what came before, like that, that that corporate interest and the self interest and the self preservation of your own systems of power, but also the willingness to accept that those times are ending, mm. and that the system that you were brought up in is just as evil and corrupt as you think it is. Like he, you know, he takes kickbacks and all that, but you get the idea that he kind of does it because he has to, because he has to, and because yeah. it's what he's done. Yeah. But in the end, when he's about to do the debate, he's kind of resigned himself to maybe this guy is the future. And maybe, you know, I can retain my voice by being in the background, yeah. you know, and, and opposing my thing. But he kind of accepts the fact that maybe, this new wave is is to come. Not even knowing that the new wave itself is corrupt in mm-hmm. its own way, corrupt in different ways. Well, I think it's. I mean, I, the 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 word that I kept texting myself throughout this movie was Elizabeth Bicky is very tall. She is very tall. Um, no, but she plays a big. Um, I'm actually going to come when I make my list at the end of the at the end of the year, which we have to settle on how we're going to do that. Um, she right now probably has my supporting actress mm. um, win. Um, Spoilers if, for me. Well, there's there's more movies to yeah, see. Yeah, definitely. Um, but the the word cycles kept coming up, and you know, there's the cycles of, of abuse, and there's cycles of violence, and there's cycles of poverty, um, cycles and, of power, and there's right, and there's all these kind of different, really interesting ways that he he shows that McQueen shows these things, and um, I mean, I liked. I've liked all of Steve McQueen's movies, but I think this is my favorite. I'd agree. Um, Absolutely. But, like, even really subtle things. And I know this is based off of a novel, and I forgot to write down who wrote the novel. Um, But when I was watching it, I was like, this is, this watches like a novel. This watches like a great novel. Um, Where there's perfect control over all the characters, and all the characters 
um, even the ones like the husbands who are part of of um, Harry's gang, who you don't really see a lot of, um, they're given their characters are given a lot of. It's actually depth. based on a British television. Oh, a television show. Okay. Um, so, like Michelle Rodriguez's husband, you know, um, is a gambler. So the money, you know, the money comes in, the money goes out. He's got to get more money so he could push it out. You know what I mean? It's just this kind of thing. Um, you know, Veronica says, Viola Davis' character says, um, you know, when, when Jamal Manning is at her apartment and he's, you know, saying you have to liquidate all this stuff. And later she says, like, I don't, I don't own anything. I don't have anything. Um, at the end of that conversation that he has with her, he kind of like pats her on the head and is like, welcome, welcome back. You know what I mean? Kind of like you've gotten to one spot and now you're coming back to this other spot. And, um, you know, even something so stupid as like the fact that they get their van is like a used van. You know what I mean? And I think the only reason I'm pointing it out is because like he put the scene in there where that guy is telling her like what the good van is. You know, you know what's a a good used van to get, and like all this other stuff. It's just like these things in these, and you imagine like there's vans have been a big part of the movie so far. You're just like, what was this van used for? Like, you know, what's like what's been happening? Like, and you imagine that all this stuff has just kind of like been turning itself over for sixty years as the Mulligans have been in power. It's just kind of been like one thing after another after another, and that's I think why Jamal is such an interesting character because even though he recognizes who he is in this community and his, like his status, he also recognizes that he can't stay here forever in. Now he talks about getting older. Right. And he's like, Oh, I'm 37. And it's like, well, I'm I'm almost 37. (laughs) I don't feel the same way, but because of the life that he's lived, he understands that like, there has to be another step. There has to be like growth. And I think, you know, in the conversation that you were talking about before, um, where, you know, Colin Farrell says, I don't, I won't have to talk to people like you. Um, one of the things that Robert Duvall says is like, you know, what are they going to change into? They're going to change into what? And like, he doesn't see it, but everybody else sees it. You yeah. know what I mean? This other, this next generation of people sees it. And I think one of the really interesting questions about the movie is like, where does where does Harry fit in? Is he part of the Robert Duvall generation that doesn't see this world changing and thinks he can kind of just do what he wants to do, however he wants to do it and kind of get away with it. Or does he, does, you know, he's clearly not part of like that next generation typified by the widows and, and, um, you know, by Jack Mulligan and stuff like that. Um, or is he in this kind of weird liminal state between the two things? Um, I tend to think it's, it's, it's the in between thing. And that's why his death is, is, his death and non-death, like the coming back to life, is is significant. You know what I mean? He kind of hovers. He's dead. He's alive, and then he's dead. Then he's alive, and then he's dead again. Well, I would say, to some degree, that Tom, David, and and um, Harry act as catalysts, kind of bridges mm-hmm. to that world. Um, you know, Harry acting has this emotional crux for um veronica mm-hmm. like like you know following the death of their their child you know he mm-hmm. kind of like has this the domineering emotional power over her um alice having been a product of abuse by both her mother man jackie weaver always great too yeah 
I love Jackie Beaver. Um, and, you know, her, her ex-husband. Um, and David kind of playing up that abuse, but playing it from an, a state of emotional detachment. It's a different, yeah, it's like it's, it's a different name for the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's it's not an abuse of, so all of them are kind of doing abuses, but not, so Har- Harry's abuse is, is focused first in like this emotional attachment. And then when, you know, Veronica kind of grows from that, she grows from that in the way that Harry's given up on her. Harry's moved on to, you know, the, the Carrie Coon character mm-hmm. that he has has a child with now. And, and so she no longer has that sense of, of emotional need. Mm. Um, David, in the same way, works as, you know, everyone has betrayed Alice, not betrayed Alice, but everyone has abused Alice has done so also under the veil of an emotional attachment under the veil of, of, you know, we are your blanket, we are your safety. Mm-hmm. And David's just like, this is a transaction. Like he's, I only say he's necessarily emotionally abusive because he's just, he is a part of that. He's definitely, you know, socioeconomically abusive in the yeah. sense of he represents a sort of like certain class um, that looks down at other people. But he does similar kind of what she could, Alice would, could interpret as like a, a mistrust, an abuse of her trust, but really it's just transactional to him. And she then in turn kind of uses him to for her own means and realizes kind of like weird transactional nature and realizes that not necessarily do you have to find, uh, you know, everyone won't be your emotional blanket. Um, but I even think that she finds his hypocrisy about it. Like she has a problem with, she, her growth is so profound that she even has like a problem with the hypocrisy about his ideas that like, well, you're not my wife. I'm not going to bring you to my house. I'm going to bring you all over the world and sleep with you and give you money and do all this other stuff. But, but you're I'm not here gonna, and you're not, you're not part of my, you're not, you're part not of my me. life. Yeah, part she's of me. clearly is part of his life. You know what I mean? And yeah. She under, and I think that's why I think the character is so good as a, she at the, by the end of the movie, she understands this. She understands this completely and it's fully, or it's like a fully earned revelation about like what she's worth and who she, and who she actually is. Um, and I mean, to that end, I think the casting of Michelle Rodriguez is was really obvious. I mean, if you want to cast this type of woman in this role, Michelle Rodriguez is the best place to go. But um, also, like, like she, she doesn't portray like that tough. That's all she's person. ever done. Yeah, but she's not in this at all. No, well, she is, but it's it's vulnerable. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's that same type of. I think her and Viola Davis, or her character in. Ryle Davis's character. Man, she's also really good. Everyone's so good in this. Like, yeah, I usually don't good. like Michelle Rodriguez in most stuff. I usually, um, I usually like her, but I, usually, I enjoy her. But I don't. I'm not usually impressed by what she's doing. Well, I think that's the better. I think that's the better, the better word. And I was very, very um, impressed. Her, her, her performance is very satisfying. Her character is fully realized. It's not the stereotypical steely-eyed Michelle Rodriguez yeah, that and- we're used to getting. It is. She takes this character to like depths. I don't think a lot of other, I think a lot of other women would have tried to emulate Viola Davis's character and like gotten really like tough and angry, but her toughness and her anger is just the thing that props her up so she can get on with like every day of her life. Yeah, exactly. More so than like a personality trait. And she portrays a really good set of like gullibility and in her, in, in that vulnerableness, like when she's, 
you know, she's definitely pushed around. She's she's willing to blindly accept people's opinions of her or blindly accept bold-faced lies like her husband does or blindly kind of accepts and kind of like she does a really great job of kind of wearing the weight of when, um, you know, her husband's mother kind of says like, you know, he wasn't mm-hmm. going to live this life. He did it for you. She doesn't necessarily – she's angry, but there's like this weight of believing that, of being, you know, being gullible to that. And – you know, when I, I think that's why Tom actually works as a crux there. You know that Robert Duvall character, because like when he, when she kills him, it's kind of like that moment of being like, you know, I'm not going to be stuck in in believing I'm out of power in the moment. You know, mm. like she does establish that moment of, which is, I mean, I think that's a, I, maybe my final word on it. And you know, feel free to say anything else you want. The script is so subtle that I get it a little bit when I read like. Um, you know, comments on 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 review sites of people who are just like, oh, they have to explain some of the plot points here. Um, or they have to explain people's motivations, blah, blah, blah. Um, they're not right out, they're not like right out in the open and they don't spend a lot of time like marinating in like the past of all these characters. But, and I think people aren't used to seeing actors do work and then these little bits of script that they get um, compounding the work they do so that you can get an understanding of them. So, like, when Michelle Rodriguez tells um, the other widows that, like, have any of you seen a prison? Like, know what a, the inside of a prison looks like. Yeah. Um, they don't say explicitly that she's been to prison. But you can But I think it. she probably has been to prison. And because of that, she's a little bit walking on eggshells. You know what I mean? She's in these... She's got that typical bend to prison and trying to make a good go at it now mentality. Which also kind of works in the same way of her accepting what the mother's saying. Accepting if she's what still everyone's saying. carrying the yeah. guilt of the crimes. But And you talk about the subtlety of the script. The subtlety of the script really like was pinpointed to me during that, that kind of introduction of the Bell character, kind of the, the fourth person oh, yeah. involved in the heist, yep. where, you know, it, it starts out like, just go like, why are we making this sojourn into this person's story? And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, how's, like, is this going to be a side story that this person's life is then suddenly impacted by something that they do? Mm-hmm. And instead, it's just a good way to, 30 minutes before the fact, introduce yourself, introduce you to the character um, that's going to be, you know, like kind of the fourth protagonist. But I love it, that character because she's representative of the community. Yeah, and she's, and like she has, she's is power too. Like she is that that person who is making everything for herself. She's the one that kind of like does a lot of the the legwork mm-hmm. in it, um, and she's the one who's kind of like been. She's a single mother, you know. She's she's been bred in the world. She's been kind of like ground down by the the sins of the people around her, even by the other widows, especially like the Veronica. So mm-hmm. she's now this fully realized person. She doesn't need that arc. She's there already. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Everything about this movie is good. It's fascinating. Um, it was a fascinating movie and it's, you know, I don't know. There's a couple of, you know, there's a couple of shots that I'm sure like a lot of people will talk about. We already talked about the car scene. I think the early scene of Viola Davis in the blurriness of the mirror, um, is a really when she screams is a really great shot. You know, there's so it's much so realistic. There's so much meaning in like the visual of that too. Um, the shot at the end of the movie where you see Elizabeth Debicki and Viola Davis in like the different 
settings of the mirror, like on the pillar. Um, so great, many great perspective great shots shot, too. Yeah, um, um, and then the, I mean, such a good use of distance and everything. Oh I think the the other thing I liked in the other shot that really I thought was good was um, there is so you know we talked about the car scene, the angle of the car scene, you know, is really distinctive. It's kind of you know this. You don't see the whole car. You see half the car. You can kind of see a little glare across the screen, maybe uh, across the windshield, maybe the driver behind the window. Um, for me, that scene is mirrored at the end of the movie when Daniel Kaluuya steals the um, the van with the money in it. And he's sitting in the van, and you get a similar kind of shot. You get half the car, half outside the car. You know, you, you know, seeing the lights come by. Um you don't see it, you just, but you see him, and he's listening to the debate. And he was resistant to the idea of his brother going into politics. But through the process of this film, you kind of get this, and he's got this big smile on his face, like he has the money. And you can kind of see that, like, if we can do this, things will be different. And, yeah, my brother can become, he can make do it, it and we can make, we, you know, maybe we don't stop doing all this stuff, and maybe we had to take some people down to get to this point. Maybe it's if all we worth do it. this right, and then maybe we're gonna make a change, like the means justifying the end. You know, kind of like the criminal mentality. Yeah, absolutely. About. And it's that's why his his what eventually happens to him is kind of m- more sad than I think it yeah. you would expect it to be because he's a villain, um, and a villain who's very early on established as brutal and but he's another one he's it's, but he's so he's almost, but as you build into the character he just you, you get rounded edges to him yeah and he almost strikes me as bell's counterpart because if they're both of the community they're both born and bred in that community and they both but they both see different ways of going about trying to get beyond what they were bred for yeah um it's just yeah fascinating there's so many other things to talk about. Um, yeah, but we need to, I, but we need to move on. But I will say this: there is a possibility we might talk about this movie again. Well, I think we're going to talk about it at the end of the year for sure. We'll have some more things to say about it. But yes, you had there's a possibility. That. Okay, so. uh, but we'll be right back with our lists number eighty-two. So. All right, we're back. Um, my number eighty-two movie. Another another special unplanned theme episode this week um, that we didn't realize until we actually got to a couple weeks ago. Completely unplanned. Yeah. Totally and completely. Um, is Steven Spielberg's 2001 film AI Artificial Intelligence. His name is David. I feel it. That's creepy. Whoa. That's so real. <laughs> <laughs> In a distant future, in an age of intelligent machines, he is the first robotic child programmed to love and coexist as a member of a family. His is a tale of humanity and a journey to find his place among humans and machines. I saw this movie in theaters several times. Really? A bunch of... Um... At least three, possibly four. I'm trying to remember the fourth time. But at least three. Um, I was indifferent to seven-eighths of this movie. 
Um, and then when Haley Joel Osment's David, who is a robot, um, traverses the flooded streets of Manhattan and finds his way to Coney Island with his robotic talking bear and gets trapped under the Ferris wheel in front of the Blue Angel who he believes is going to turn him into a real boy so his mother will love him gets frozen in ice as another Ice Age comes begging the Blue Angel to turn him into a real boy um I was hooked forever um it was the at that moment of my life the most existentially sad thing I had ever encountered um and it had such a profound impact on me and it's preceding scene with um, the higher race robots that were ancestors, that were, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? That were de- that evolved from these things that David once was. Um, from the original creations of man um, 2,000 years later um, when they thaw him out and they put him they scan his memory and they build a complete replica of the house that he lived in with his mother um, played by Francis O'Connor and then they recreate his mother for a day um, knowing that she will live only for the one day and that when the one day ends, she will go away, and he's never going to see her again. Um, I think Steven Spielberg means it to be a happy story. The Ben Kingsley narration kind of suggests that it's supposed to be kind of a happy ending. He got what he wanted. He had, you know, he had a dream. Um, I never, ever, ever once saw it as a happy moment. I saw it as a continuation of the saddest thing I've ever seen. Um, I was so moved by it the first time I saw it that I went out the next night to see it again because I just had to confirm it in my head. Um, and it did, and it's just it's just so tremendously, powerfully sad um, and wonderful, and it's like the fullest realization of some of like the neo Steven Spielberg backlighting that you know him and Janice Kaminsky engage in on a regular basis. Now um, the backlighting is so heavy in this movie that the it's almost blown out. Yeah. And in, in a lot of shots, it's washed but, out a lot of times. But I think I it really, I think in the ending scenes, it really works and it's really impactful and it's really meaningful. And it when almost you're doing it seems all like throughout a dream. the entire, like most of the film though, that's right. what bugs me. And, well, that... and so that's the thing we should, uh, one of the conversations I want to have about this movie is they gets pitched. It got pitched originally as like a Stanley Kubrick, you know, a Stanley Kubrick joint. It was yeah. a movie he was developing, and then, you know, for years, and he was talking about it with Steven Spielberg, and then he was like, oh, Steven, you should direct it. And Steven was like, oh, I don't know if we should direct it. Maybe I'll produce it, and you'll direct it. And Stanley Kubrick was like, no, I'll produce it, and you'll direct it. And then Stanley Kubrick died. and then Allegedly. S- Steven- <laughs> yeah. Stanley Kubrick Tupac'd himself. <laughs> and then um, Steven Spielberg, you know, wrote a version of the script and made the movie. And there's homages to Stanley Kubrick all over the place in the movie um, from some of the set design and, you know, some of the shots. Um, but that's really, that's really it. And from a Stanley Kubrick perspective, um, I think 
most of the movie, the whole middle section, um, when he David encounters Jude Law, who plays like a sex robot, yeah. named um, Gigolo Joe, is pretty pretty bad. It's all very mid two thousands Steven Spielberg. Um, I mean, excluding Catch Me If You Can, I guess. But like, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. Is, it very much feels like what you'd see from the Terminal or films of its ilk. But with a kind of bootleg kid, kid rock song in the middle of it. Oh, and yeah. a weird Brendan Gleeson performance when he's flying a blimp See, that, this that entire... looks like the moon. And then, they, <laughs> and then they escape and go to the sex the sex village. And yeah. Then he escapes that in a plane just out of nowhere after a Robin Williams cartoon gives him you know, the necessary advice that he needs to get himself to Manhattan. Um, yeah, that middle section just seems like Steven Spielberg's attempt to maybe do something that he thought Stanley Kubrick might do thematically. And instead did something that felt like a Ridley Scott fever dream in many ways. I mean, I don't love Ridley Scott, but I feel like you're really you're really hammering on Ridley Scott. I meant fever dream. Fever dream, yeah. I, I mean, this movie just... I don't, I don't like it. Mm. Um, it. It feels... Too much like a patchwork film for its first two acts, and in doing so, while that you know that third act, that you know that, that final moments carry that gravity, but I don't feel that gravity is earned because getting to that point just feels so insincere. And this feels like a really insincere movie mm. to me. Um, and and like a lot of people. You know, looking at a lot of the critical reviews for it, say like talk and you know retrospectively talk about the impact of that third act and like only being able to have Monica back for the day, um, and about how heartbreaking and, and but bittersweet that is. And to me, I'm just kind of annoyed by it. I'm annoyed mm. by a lot of that ending. What annoys you, Meryl because Streep? Because it just feels like it has such weight, and, and, and you know Spielberg's script. And how much does he actually? I don't. How much has he actually written of, of movies? This is one of his few, like, solely written. Soul, right? I mean, I guess, so I guess there was a script that was developed with Stanley Kubrick, and I guess the story goes that he used a lot of that script, mm-hmm. but he just kind of, like, shaped it on, he shaped it so much and added enough that he could say, written by Steven Spielberg, with, like, story by, I forget whatever the guy's name is in Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, and it just... But you're right. Um, it... It doesn't feel it's human it doesn't feel natural. Right. And I don't want to say human, but it feels very artificial. I mean <laughs> uh, it feels I don't want to say artificial, but it feels deliberate. Yeah. This is a very deliberate film, but in doing so it just doesn't earn anything it's doing. I agree with you. Um to a point. I think one of the things, one of the questions I had upon, and I hadn't watched it in a while when I watched it to, you know, to do this. Um, one of the questions I was, I, that occurred to me before I watched it was how much, because, you, you know, you think a Stanley Kubrick movie means something very specific. All of his movies are the same. Um, they all deal with similar themes and they go about attacking those themes in very similar ways. I couldn't imagine Stanley Kubrick's version of this movie that's presented. No, um, not at all. You know, even with the neon ladies, you know, bent over like bridges and or bent over buildings with their, you know, butts as entrances or like the women's mouths as, um, 
you know, you know, bridge entrances and, and tunnels and shit like that. I even though I know understand those are supposed to be pastiches of things that Stanley Kubrick did in like stuff like Clockwork Orange, but it's not like it doesn't really work like that. The beginning of the movie. My question was related to more the beginning of the movie. So where Steven Spielberg goes to like how AI, the AI, the presence of AI is dealt with emotionally by these parents and by like William Hurt's character who plays a doctor who you know you learn later in the movie had a son that looked exactly like Haley Joel Osment's character and that was one of the reasons he wanted to kind of reinvent a boy that he could love. Um, in his, in, you know, in this kid's image, Stanley Kubrick wouldn't have attacked this subject matter in that way. He wouldn't have gone from the uh, like. He wouldn't have had William Hurt give that speech about wanting to develop, you know, a robot that can learn how to love, with all of these, you know, very flowery comments about you know the significance of love, and and um, he would have been very concerned about the process of of AI and how. AI fits into our daily lives. You know what I mean? Like I can almost, I can see a little bit of some of that procedural clockwork orange stuff or the, the Barry Lyndon stuff. Like <clears throat> here's the minutia of what this life looks like um, in a Stanley Kubrick version of this film. You know what I mean? It's David not just interacting with like a couple of things, but David interacting with a lot of things. Like the full breadth of what it means to be alive in whatever year this is supposed to be taking place. Um, and you know Steven Spielberg doesn't do any of that stuff. He eschews most of that stuff and just kind of deals with the mom's attachment to this non-son, and then how, and then her grief and, when she's forced to give him up. And a fault I had with this too is is I think there would have been more nuance to the David character in a vision that like Stanley Kubrick would have done. Um, you know, Stanley Kubrick when he creates a secondary character, when he creates secondary characters, he'll sometimes will make like an artifice, make a, a facade, to, to in order to kind of tell a narrative driving his central mm-hmm. protagonist. But in this, David feels so dimensionless,lessness. He feels yeah, that's he cool. lacks dimension because uh, I can't say the word apparently. <laughs> um, that's late. And uh, you know. It feels like Spielberg did that with the intention of, oh, well, he's still an android. Um, but there isn't that nuance that, that would be necessary, even beyond that layer, even beyond that something like a Kubrick would do. Because mm-hmm. I think Kubrick is, like, I, I think Spielberg's a really good director. There's a couple of movies of his on my sure. list. At some point, we'll talk about those. <laughs> Who knows when? Um but he's ultimately always been to me, except for a few features here and there, very much a popcorn director who who is known more for his ability to set to create set pieces that drive emotion and not necessarily characters who are layered enough to breed that emotion to the audience mm-hmm. because of their their relatability or you know the gravity in which they they carry, and this movie demands that. Because all of this centers on that character and David, and you know, I, I don't want to discredit Haley Joel Osment's performance. I think he actually did a solid job of what he had to work with, but that character is not written with 
any sort of access point to the audience. Well, that's and so those to go back to a little, like some of what you said, like so Stanley Kubrick would give us his ancillary characters that would kind of act as if he's not going to give us a character, you know, Matthew Modine in Full Metal Jacket isn't giving me a whole lot of anything throughout the whole movie. He's really just an observer. So you need the Gomer Piles and you need these other guys to kind of carry um, the emotional arc of what Vietnam is really doing to people. You know what I mean? And in that sense, Haley Joel Osment's character would need other characters to carry the emotional burden of what he's of what he's going through. Um, but instead he gives us the worst Jude Law character in the history of film in Gigolo Joe, who doesn't make any sense. And Frances who, O'Connor, who had never, like, they tried to make her a thing during the late 90s, I know, early 2000s. I, I had kind of they, a Frances O'Connor thing. But they shouldn't have, because I don't think she had the talent. <laughs> she was, I think she was okay. She's okay, but you need more than okay in this but movie. That's, and so that's the thing. I didn't think Sam Robards is very good. I think William Hurt is playing very obvious William Hurt things here. He's just kind of he's accidental touristing himself through the movie. Yeah, he actually almost is accidental touristing himself through the movie. In the sense, no, it made me laugh when I was watching this because I was like, oh man, every time William Hurt does this character, fuck, and it's on Tom's list, I hate it. Whenever (laughs) William Hurt does the things I like and it's on Tom's list, it's probably also on my list. Um, Yeah, he just um, he has like the happy, sad awkwardness that he's kind of an expert of. Brendan Gleeson channeling Mad-Eye Moody, which you want to do for a few years anyway. Yeah, come on. Um, But I just, that one, it's that one scene, it's that one sequence of scenes, and I just, like I've never, since from 2001 when I saw it, I've never been able to get it out of my head. Do you think, I'm sorry, there's a Granny Smith apple in my mouth, but do you think, great radio. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes there are granny parts in my mouth. That this... Um, do you think this scene or this film touches you so much because those sequences of scenes because of when you saw it you had it really well so 2001 I'm 19 years old Um, you know well so what are films that kind of give you that kind of weight that existential weight at that point well so I think this is or is this one of the first ones that uh, first major feature that kind of gave you that I think this is it's an interesting that's an interesting very interesting question because we'll look at some we'll look at a lot of these movies later um, I didn't feel the same kind of feeling when watching something like American Beauty or watching something like um, you had already seen American Beauty by this point yeah yeah because yeah. I saw American I, I was seeing movies in theaters by yeah. 1999 um I said no. If American Beauty had happened to be one of them, no, 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 because I didn't find it sad. Um, I found American Beauty to be lots of other things, but I didn't find it sad. Even like you know, and I had seen a bunch of movies that are high up on my list, like Amadeus um, is on my list, and I saw that very early, and I didn't find that sad either. Even though there's like a a, a definitive sadness component to yeah. to Amadeus, something like Amadeus. This is the first movie I encountered, and like this thing, and I would like to tie it to. Um, you know, a personal event that was happening in my life. But, like, you know, several family members by this point, you know, significant family members and grandparents had already been dead for, like, six years. So it wasn't, like, one of those things that I was like, oh, this just happened and I saw this and I was very sad. No, it was just kind of one of those things where, like, he's not going to get it. And he can't understand it. And Ben Kingsley is saying some awesome Ben Kingsley stuff. And the images are great, 
And Joe is gone now with the worst Steven Spielberg line ever when he's getting sucked up to that magnet car and he goes, I am. I was. And David's just kind of like, oh, all right. Yeah, all right. Good. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, he's like, one day I'll have a fat face. Don't worry. It's Haley just, Joel saying that. I didn't, I don't think I could process, I, I couldn't place properly the significance of the scene. So it just struck me as like profoundly sad. Um, so do you think potentially in a really great, but in a, like in a, in a really, hmm, you know what actually movie comes close to this and it's way it's after. Burn Gully. It's, no, yeah. no, it's the Too legends thorough. of Gahul. Um, <laughs> um, the Care Bears film. Oh, I love that Care Bears movie and the Care yeah, Cousins. Yeah. Um, is um, like something like Pan's Labyrinth, the end of Pan's Labyrinth. Is I think, yeah, well, is is a profoundly sad scene. Yeah, um, and that's kind of. And, but I was a different. I was a much different person in two thousand six than I was in two thousand one. I was twenty when I saw the Pan's Labyrinth. There you go. Um, um, I the thing I I have to ask though. Ask it. Do you think it's because it's such a flawed film leading to those moments? And I do admit that that third act. In a vacuum. Oh, what is this? In a vacuum is... Uh, that's a little weird bass there. Uh, we, we, da- we, we dabble <laughs> with weird bass sometimes. Uh, in a vacuum is, is, a, is an incredibly solid sequence of, of film. Yeah. But because it's, you know, preceded by such... I almost want to say it. I will say it. Drivel, mm-hmm. in my opinion. That it makes it stand out more for you. And then that in, as a 19-year-old, that's kind of like was a good punch compared to something like American Beauty which is kind of just a continuous it's consistently good yeah. throughout the whole thing um, it's definitely it's definitely possible I I mean I didn't I'm not asking if that's true I'm just wondering yeah yeah no I'm thinking marinate in it sure sure um, and even just watching it now like when I'm watching those middle scenes of this movie um, I'm just kind of cringing because they're so bad like the bootleg, like this is already, really a cringy there is, there is moments I already mentioned there. the bootleg kid you know kid rock song that's playing during the whole flesh fair thing, yeah. the fact that Kid Rock has a cameo, or not Kid Rock, that Chris Rock has a cameo voice. Yeah, I was like, I was a, like, what? A, I didn't see the director's cut of this. Of a, uh, you know, a, like a, a robot that looks exactly like Chris Rock yeah. getting shoved into a cannon is kind of stupid. Um, I think some of the other special, I think some of the practical effects in this movie look really bad. What's that like? Like what? Like, um, some of the scenes of, like when they're in like the sex town, the sex city, or whatever it is, the pleasure city, um, when that car shows up, and you know Haley Joel Osment kind of pulls the car back, um, you know he pulls the car up off the ground. It's obviously very small. It's it's obviously like a set. You can tell it's a set. And it's a closed set, no, and like no. everyone's just kind of acting. Like, they're ducking at, like, the exact right time. It's not, like, an organic thing that's, you know, that's that's happening. You know what I mean? It's, like, you know, you could see where everyone was blocked and everyone's kind of doing everything, um, you know, appropriately and stuff like that. And even, like, the, even the, like, the flesh fair stuff, there's not nearly enough extras in the stands to make that a really powerful scene. It does feel, it does feel, that middle section feels so deliberate that it takes you out of it, too. Yeah. Like they're so carefully orchestrated, and it feels like 
Spielberg in some ways felt like he had to do that. Um, in but I order... think he thought that Kubrick would do that, that he would get dark. I don't, I don't think he was trying to emulate Kubrick. No, but I think, I think he, he was... that Kubrick would get dark at some point and that he needed to get dark. But that's the thing. He's, he's... Sometimes even Spielberg goes through these moments where he doesn't really recognize what he's got. So he's got all these robots right before the moon blimp shows up and Brendan Gleeson with his peddling, you know, maniacal mad scientist, you know, act kind of... You know, starts sending guys on motorcycles that look like they're want to be in Tron, like chasing robots down and shit like that. You got a bunch of robots. It was a practice run for Ready Player One. Yeah, I guess so. You have all these robots kind of picking through piles of, of, you know, pieces and like putting them onto themselves and like they're you know they've half heads and they have no arms and all these other things like that's appropriately dark like let's see what this world looks like these scavenger robots like why would you instantly go to you know a rock concert where guar is playing like you know and now we're melting people and shooting them into fans like who gives a shit like that's not interesting no there's an interesting movie contained within this and you've done like the least interesting thing including putting adrian grenier and uh, you know a cameo <laughs> appearance, even oh, though he was man. nobody at that point. What, you should regret are, that. Are you are you saying he was ever a somebody? We're gonna pretend Entourage made him somebody for a moment. He was somebody for a second. Him and Jeremy Piven were somebody for a second. And now they're both gone, forever. Here Good we go. Society. Kevin Connelly's Kevin Connelly's still around. Um, but yeah, that's I mean, that's AI. It's it's it was. It's not a movie I, I despise. It's a movie I don't like. No, it's not it a just, movie it, I love I feel either. So like, but that third act, I can't, I can't shake it. And I'm, we're still in my, we're still in my visceral movie block. That like, even to this day, it's just, it's, it's, it's like, got a, There's a depth of feeling there that goes beyond. Oh, I can respect like, that. Normal, there's definitely, there's definitely kind of garbage movie movies. I mean, you know, we talked about this last week, kind of that. <laughs> A garbage movie that that spoke to me viscerally in the moment, and now I watch it back, and I'm like, mm. yeah. At least I have at least I have the third act at least in <laughs> you, AI to and, like hang on to. I, well, you know, also at least you have you know performers and creators yes. you're not grossed out by. Let's let's fingers crossed that nothing comes out about Steven Spielberg ever. Oh no, I was talking about Jake Thomas. Oh okay, all right. Yeah, <laughs> um, we will be right back with Mario's eighty two. few weeks ago you had a podcast you had a podcast not me i do you. i have my own my own podcast. it's, <laughs> it's called pivotal film and you have an ai voice in it <laughs> but me and ben kingsley do weird, it weird twist it turns out i'm not a real person uh we had a podcast episode titled it makes me smile mm-hmm. or paraphrased i don't remember titles off the top of my head but i think that's what you it know was. let's roll with that shit and we're still in that era era of films that impacted me at a young age. I think, you know, we're in, still in the visceral film stages mm-hmm. um, for you. And this this is a movie that perennially, when I saw as a child and now today, still makes me smile, even though it's it's telegraphed in every way. And maybe because it, it, it established a lot of these tropes. But, you know, it's it's something that's comfortable, something that's safe. I've, I've talked about the security blanket movie, and this is one of the ultimate security blanket films and that is 1982 steven spielberg (laughs) i told you guys we're gonna talk about it uh fantasy family sci-fi adventure 
E.T., the extraterrestrial. We have to dis- discuss the plot of this film for, for people. I, I guess E.T. is an alien. He likes beer. He likes beer. He likes, he likes Reese's Pieces. Yeah. He gets drunk. He has a, a telepathic connection with Elliot, played by one of the better children actors by that point of, in Henry Thomas. Oh, yeah. He was very good. He's excellent. Um, you know, he, he needs to get back home. He's a botanist alien basically <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is great just a botanist alien an alien well, I guess it, would, like would it be a botanist it wouldn't really be a botanist wouldn't it be it'd be like a xenot xenotanist he'd be a xenotanist because he's studying different he, species it, of because if he was a bot it, okay interesting let's let's divert here if he was a botanist he'd be studying his own plants right but because he's studying the plants would that make him a xenotanist twitter guys let me know what what ET's I'm job sure title like is? Ten Reddit. Oh, I'm sure. About. I'm sure, but I, I don't want to look that up right now. Um, <laughs> okay. He gets lost. He gets he gets left behind. He encounters a young boy. Um, they get on hijinks as the government tries to capture him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he goes around. Eventually, gets back home because this is not a movie that's going to shock you with anything that does, but it shocks you in. But it doesn't even shock you with how proficiently it's done. Because Steven Spielberg, by this point, had proven himself to be a master of film. Um, There's two other of his films from earlier that show up on my list. So, guys, you can basically start marking down (laughs) what's on our list at this point. Uh, But I saw this before one of those movies. And the other movie was just fun for me. Mm -hmm. This was a movie that I really... Had the jaw gape sort of thing. There's, there's e. remar- yeah, there's remarkable moments in this. You know, that that classic going across the moon shot. But even even the smaller ones, like that entire sequence intercutting when ET's getting drunk with Elliot mm-hmm. at the at school. You know, these these are moments that are so iconic, and but they're so small in the sense of it's it's not needing to be a major set piece. You know, this film's made on only a $10 million budget, which is not a small consideration of change at the time, mm-hmm. but they're not moments that require massive amounts of energy. No, he gets a lot of work out of that shit. He gets a lot of work out of his actors. He gets a lot of work out of out of smallness, out mm-hmm. of tightness and closeness. Yep. Um, and so seeing this movie as a six five or six year old it was interesting seeing something that's not doing a lot that's very small moments of adventure very small moments of what would be visually striking images you know mm-hmm. that, that moon sequence or, or seeing the spaceship land but everything else is so small so so contained but yet it has such weight it has such value it has such size and scope to it and that's what impresses me about this film that's why it's on my list it's not necessarily you know not just necessarily because it's that quintessential family film and it's that movie that you can watch anytime like back to the future is another example of that i can watch you know i don't i don't i don't take a lot from it on a deep level but i take a lot from it on a, on a just a it makes me feel better if i'm having a bad day mm. but even as a child there's nothing that really captures you in the sense of its scale. It, it keeps you because of 
the soundness of its very typical story and its fantasy on the fringe. It's it's possibility. Mm. It's ability to sort of capture and, and push the imagination. It, it makes it demands a lot of its audience while showing its audience a lot. Well, Roger Ebert in his great movie review, I don't know, he wrote like seven great movie reviews for like every great movie. But in one of the ones, uh, the, one of his ET ones, he kind of frames it as like a letter to his niece and nephew who were kids. And um, he kind of says it, you know, a movie that needs to be watched through the eyes of a child because the movie is told through the eyes of a child. And that speaks, I think, to the point that you're making about like how these small things have gravity. So when E.T. is, you know, E.T. says, you know, E.T. phone home. The fact that he learned to say E.T. phone home is the biggest fucking mind blower to these three kids that and the movie presents yeah, Henry, it as such. Henry Thomas, like just that, that amazing, perfor- like that amazing just face he makes. Well, even he's even like, um, ah! even Robert McNaughton, like when yeah. he gets home, when you know he gets home from wherever from school, and what's all this shit? E.T. phone home. My God, he's talking. Oh, E.T. phone home. E.T. Phone home. And they'll come. Come. It's like, you know, they just kind of can't believe that this is even happening to them. And it's um, rendered, in that case, so profound. Because everything when you're a kid is that profound and, you know what i mean and i hate this bullshit line that people use but i'm gonna fucking use it right now but you know like you you do say like oh i i love coming back to this tv show or this film or this story or whatever or you know even now that it's been this old the medium of this video game and it makes me feel like a kid again it, it allows me to capture that wonder and i think this is such this is done in the moments where where i i think you know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like he's maybe lost it um, because a lot of it now feels artificial with what he's with what Spielberg's doing. But this does capture a lot of that wonder. It does make you feel in the yeah. mind of, of a simple, simple. Well, I mean, I <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> I mean, so I'll tell you my story that I to I was trying to get my kids to watch this with me and, and uh, my eight year old thought that E.T. looked like he was made out of modeling chocolate and she didn't want any part of this movie. Modeling chocolate? Yeah. It's like chocolate you used to make shit. Oh, no, no, I know. Yeah. I just, I just was... Modeling chocolate. And she was creeped out by that. Does she... How does she have familiarity with modeling chocolate? Isn't she's it usually, baked. Is it no, usually, she's it's not usually milk? Or is it like... No, I she hasn't dark? used it, but she watches baking shows. So oh, she's, okay, okay. There was modeling chocolate. But me and um, my little guy, we watched it and he was all in. From the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. And when E.T. was going to leave, and, you know, him and um, Elliot were having that final moment together um, before E.T. got on the ship, he just started crying because he didn't want E.T. to leave. And if he had E.T., he would never let him leave, and E.T. would be his best friend forever. And 
All this other stuff, and that got e. me. E. He, he knows E.T. would die, right? Yeah, he understood. Okay. He got it. And he didn't he's like, okay. he he's didn't okay like that. He was he a, but, like it. It. but I mean, like. But he understood <laughs> that, like, E.T. needed to go home. But E.T. was also Elliot's best friend, and he would keep his best friend with him for as long as humanly possible. So he was crying, which I thought was a really kind of profoundly adult thing. Um, not he's not like an adult, but like a grown-up thing to like recognize the loss of a friend and to be like moved to tears by it. But to realize that's a necessity. Needless to say, I was also moved to tears by it. My wife took pictures of us, oh. just like <laughs> him sitting that, in my lap, just like crying. Oh, if I didn't have a picture of your your kid, I would be like, I want to yeah, post pictures of you crying to Instagram. Um, and it's funny because this was not my movie when I was. A kid. I mean, it came out the year I was born. Um, but my movie when I was a kid that was like E.T. was like... Um, Mac and Me? No, Flight of the Navigator. That's not a bad movie, though. Flight of the Navigator. Me and my brother were all that, about Flight of the Dennis Navigator. It's not Dennis Quaid, is it? Who's in that? No. Um, Wait, why do I always want to think it's Dennis? Oh, because that's Flight That's flight of the Phoenix. <laughs> Let's look up Flight but of I, the Navigator. I am, I am familiar with Flight of the Navigator. It didn't really... That one didn't speak to me, but I remember it being solid. It's like Never Ending Story, a movie I'm like, that, that was That was solid. the other one. So never, like, Flight of the Navigator and Never Ending Story were like my two movies. So Sarah Jessica Parker is in it. Paul Rubens does the voice of the Navigator. Howard Hessman. That's pretty good. You gotta get Howard Hessman there. Which one's Howard Hessman? Cliff DeYoung. Howard Hessman's a doctor. Yeah, but which, who is Howard Hessman? He was on about. WKRP in Cincinnati. Oh, okay, okay. Um, you know, a lot of good 80s people, you know. Um, but that was that was my e- version of ET. Like I was, I ET was fine. I really didn't care about ET. The only you know the thing I liked best about ET was the the ride at Universal Studios. I thought the ET ride was very good. You could like pedal your pedal your fake bike through like you know an, a, a moonlit ET land, um, and you it would reminds, fly, and it was really good. It reminds me of the Peter Pan ride at Disney. I love that one. Where's that one? Is that Magic Kingdom? Oh, okay. I only went to Disneyland oh, once. I didn't go to... I didn't go to Magic Kingdom. Peter Pan. I, I spend as much time out of Florida as possible, <laughs> which is my entire life. <laughs> um, so I understood what Roger Ebert was saying in the sense that it took watching it through a child's eyes to kind of see it for real. Like that, how everyone else probably saw it in 1982 when they were just kind of like, what the hell is this? That being said, it is still a Steven Spielberg movie, so there's still weirdness. Oh, definitely. Like, the march of the scientists over the hill against the sunset for no reason is just typical Steven Spielberg, like, I'm going too far with this. I'm going, I'm, I'm pushing the boundaries of what this movie should See, be. And there's, there's moments where Spielberg does things. And I was watching, I think I saw this movie against the backdrop of other movies of its ilk that were coming out that were kind of emulating the Spielberg motif on a much smaller budget, like Little Giants. Oh, yeah, Little And Giants. Sandlot, and, and films that kind of carried James and the Giant Peach, um, mm. that carried this weight of very, very obvious on-the-nose villains and an on-the-nose threat that you know now watching carries no... Scope of danger whatsoever. Right, yeah, exactly. But I see E.T. still has a children's film. Mm-hmm. 
I, I do see the, you know, and I, I think he would try later on to do that again with Hook, and that's where he starts, like, losing the plot, even though I still actually like Hook. A lot of people say... I think Hook's pretty good. A lot of people say, rewatch Hook, you you won't, you know, you, you'll realize how bad it is, because, like, a lot of people are like, it's good, and I, I rewatched it, and I was like, this, you know, outside of fucking Julia Roberts... It's got Phil Collins. Yeah. Phil Collins is in it. Yeah, I know. It's gotta be pretty good. And Bob Hoskins. Yeah. Bob yeah. Hoskins is always yeah. good. But that's that's not a bad movie. I was gonna say in Dustin Hoffman, but then I realized we can't say that anymore. <laughs> well, he's up in the air. Is he okay? Um, but no, I watched watch that. That's still pretty decent. But like, obviously, he was more on the nose. That this is subtle enough that that it it, it isn't seen as a children's film. But I think it still is. So I forgive a lot of those. Mm. I think I agree with pastiche. you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it's weird, like, so the beer, we talked about the beer scene really early. What do you think of the beer scene now? Like, is that still a children's thing? Like, would a kid understand? Because I don't think, Lin- I don't think no, Linus no. understood it, like, I, that he's I, getting drunk. I think. Were people he would, way more drunk in the 80s no, than they were now? <laughs> you know, I saw, I saw that, and when I was like, oh, he, when I saw this as a kid, I literally went, he's drinking that drink, that, and my dad is not that much of a drinker, just, just to preface that. Um. But a few times, you know, he'd, he'd drink like three or four and mm. act a little silly. And I was like, oh, he's drinking that drink that my dad drinks that makes him silly. Mm. And now he's acting silly and he's making Elliot act silly. And so that's how I saw it. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was like, oh, it's that drink, you know, that silly yeah. drink. I wasn't necessarily like, oh, he's drunk, but it's like, oh, I understand what he's drinking. Well, it's funny because like what I understood beer when I was a kid to be... Um the devil's juice? No, to be McMichelob's. Uh, I always thought all beers had gold foil wrapped around the top of it and only came in brown bottles. Um, you know, so I, when I was a kid, I wouldn't have recognized a Coors can as a beer. I would have just assumed it was soda. I was like, he's drinking too much soda. Well, see, maybe I was, I was such a child grown on television, especially like early Monday Night Rawls. Where they'd have a lot of beer commercials, mm. and so I'd remember Coors being a beer, and hearing about Coors and Bud and Michelob, and you know that that whole variety of macro brews that we won't drink on this fucking podcast. <laughs> um, and knowing that oh, that's that's a beer, and that's the thing that my dad drank that yeah. makes him funny that I think tastes like grossness. We don't think that anymore, Mario. Well, macro beers taste like grossness, <laughs> except for Pabst. I like yeah, paps. Mm. And hams. What's hams? Hams is national get, Bo- national bohemian. That's what I we heard. Were drinking in, I've in had. Barrows. Oh, I actually had national bohemian. So we were recently playing a board game called Sheriff of Nottingham, and the punishment for lying because it's a lying game, and if you lied in it, you had to drink national bohemian. I had to take a sip of it. And I took. A, I was like, oh, it's a punishment. So it must be terrible. And I took a sip of it, and I was like, this is not half bad. I kind of like the national bohemian. It's not it's half bad. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not the East Rock Brewing Black Lager. But no, it but it's is also not, not bad. Budweiser. No, yeah, Budweiser's awful. Or it's yeah. not like fucking natural ice. Ugh. This has been Beer Talk with Mario and Tom. <laughs> but, no, so so I think he, he shows you enough to where maybe if you're familiar with it or maybe if your dad and his friends, you know, drank coolers or, or drank a beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you, just like one And thing. like the burping and whatnot. Sure, and sure. everything mixed with that kind of I, I think plays into the fact of like as a kid I would get I would get that. I think the thing that I would point maybe out maybe it's because Linus didn't get it because he's like so used to you drinking like craft beer. 
My dad um, isn't do- going on as untapped. He's not going on as untapped while drinking. I don't have untapped. Um, I think the thing that's interesting is that aspects of the film are very dated. Like, very specific aspects of it. Like, some of the details. Mm. But the themes and the emotions are not dated. And no. that's always the thing that Steven Spielberg does better than a lot of other people. Is deal with, like... Rob the Marshall, own- especially. Yeah. Well, this one, really shit, on, this one shit on Rob Marshall. We'll shit on Rob Marshall later, but... Um, I don't think... I don't, I hope no, but I'm don't. just sure we'll just shit on Oh, okay. Um, you know... He always gets the emotions right you know what i mean um and he's always open to getting the emotions right he's always open to making an emotional film which you can't say for some of those other guys that came up in the 70s with him um that have kind of resisted going for the easy you know going for the easy emotion yeah um, like he did you know, I think I think him and, and Zemeckis, like Zemeckis knew how. I mean, he knew how the emotions, and Zemeckis knew how to how to capture excitement and and the set piece. I think even a little better than Spielberg did mm-hmm. early on. Um, but I think those are the two that have like been able to keep at it to some degree. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the thing. I think Spielberg was such a product of the decades before him, and was such like the child of of film itself that he knew those tenements and those bullet points you had to hit in order to capture an audience and he he does this well, because he was a product film of after him. film it's interesting because he was a real he was a product of himself in a lot of ways yeah you know what i mean because he kind of developed this idea of what a movie could be well he kind of re- know, he recreated kind of, he recreated the short serials into yeah, feature length exactly films um what is your favorite part of this movie I, I still, uh, it's it's him seeing Yoda. He was a little kid. I, I flapped my ass off, and just the way that I I, I don't know I don't know if it was a, a little person actor in, in the suit. I, I assume it was, but just just the way that he walks, <laughs> he looks at him, yeah, and it walks towards him. Still love that scene. Then yeah. they brought it back in uh, was it Revenge of the Sith? <laughs> yeah. Where it turns out. His forefathers were on the Galactic Senate, so... There you go. That's weird. Yeah. That's really, really weird. Is it? I think so. Maybe he himself was on the Galactic Senate. Those stuff... Uh, Cindy Hyde Smith had been elected to the Galactic Senate, was well, going to vote like, in Palpatine, and he was like, I have to get back, guys. Yeah, well, I forget what I was listening it. to, and they were talking about the um, the Star Wars movies and how, like, when George Lucas got, like, um, the special effects to, like, right where he wanted them, all he did was dig into the Galactic Senate more instead of doing... Like, he used all his special effects to, like, <laughs> really make the Galactic Senate come to life instead of, you know, doing anything really well, significant funny. with it. What's funny about that is to see those, like... They actually have to, like, zoom in close to see the fact that those are, you know, E.T. aliens. Right. And it's like, why did you put that much fucking effort? And, like, I bet you if you zoomed in on all the other aliens, they are all, like, individual species. It's like, what? You, why? Yeah. Why, Lucas? Well, that's the thing. So, like, that's the thing. You know, that's the thing. I think that's a good point to bring up really quickly, and I'll, I'll you get back to your that's point. Fine. Is the fact that Steven Spielberg doesn't rest in the minutia, and a lot of bad, big, big directors, and I, mm-hmm. mediocre. I'm gonna call Lucas mediocre. A lot of mediocre are bad, big directors of that ilk. 
will kind of focus in the minutia are focused in like the detail. Yeah, they hang out and there. Spielberg doesn't need it. No, he doesn't because he's got he knows he can sell it emotionally. So like E. T. looks weird and E. T. is obviously Looks kinda of bad now. He's kind of a product right. Well that's is the exact point I was gonna make is that, you know, my kids have grown up with all of these special effects and, you know, computer-generated everythings and everything can look however you want it. Then Josh Brolin can look like a 10-foot purple monster. Yeah. But, um... Or Paul Rudd can look like a 30-foot ant monster or whatever. Goldie Hawn can look like whatever that Christmas Chronicles thing was. We'll talk about that at the end of... <laughs> at the end of the episode. <laughs> oh, no. It's a terrible movie. No, I'm going to talk about it right now. I'm not going to talk about it. Christmas Chronicles, starring Kurt Russell as Santa Claus, is fucking awful. Awful, Mario. Add it to the list of Netflix misses. It is fucking terrible. That being said, there's a lot of special effects in the Christmas Chronicles. Um, But Linus bought E.T. like hook, line, and fucking sinker. Like, he was a real... He was a real friend. You know what I mean? He knew him. He wanted to, like... Give him a hug. You know what I mean? He didn't say, like, that, you know, he doesn't look smooth. Yeah. He's not dancing around. He's clumsily walking around and just falling over like he was a prop that just pushed. Um, No, he was, like, because the filmmaking is so good and the storytelling is so good and because the emotions are so real, you just say, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Whatever. It could have been a stick on a pole and it would be like, you know what? Maybe it'll work a little harder, but I can I can somewhat buy this. I get it. Yeah, it's fine. He's clearly picking up those Reese's pieces. His fingers can't bend at all, but we know he picked up the Reese's pieces. Oh, sure, absolutely. The beer is is not actually being wrapped around his fingers. It's more just kind of like being like gravitationally pulled into his <laughs> pulled hand, into his face, yeah. his open hand. It's fine, but it doesn't matter. Like wh- no, that's, that's the thing. thing. We just said the same thing. Oh, Jinx, you owe me a beer. Uh-huh. Uh is the fact that, you know, and, and that's that's a moment that is, is missed a lot of times. I don't want to say missed nowadays because I think some directors can do it, and it was definitely missed in the past. Um, you don't need pizzazz if you've got, if you got the, the sauce and the bread. Yeah. Is that an actual saying? I just mixed two no, we're wildly different. That's it. We're yeah. done. We're done now. Tell some, great, about, tell some people about great Twitter. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. At twitter.com slash film pivotal. You can look at our <laughs> long misused uh, <laughs> Instagram at instagram.com. Maybe we'll try to post a picture film. of me crying. Um, if you like the picture of me crying, you can send us an email at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. You can go to pivotalfilm.com and see. Uh, get links to subscribe to us, uh, list of our beers, list of the movies that we've talked about. Um, you know, you can listen to the episodes there if you want to. Um, if you, if you guys feel compelled to listen to those podcasts. Um, you know, it's, you know, there's every, actually there's nothing coming out next week. We're recording this all in real time and there's not, like the movies are getting kind of low. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're slowing down and I guess they're going like, up. Um, this is when the uh, independent trickle starts coming in. There's there's one movie I guess I can talk about next week. Um, there's one movie we're going to be talking about, I assume, in a few minutes. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Uh, there's Green Book coming out. Favorite's going to yeah. trickle out I'm excited soon enough. Yeah. Um, we'll get there. 
but until there's, then, know, there's a lot of movies coming out that are that are. Uh, but well, you know what? Also, depending on where our viewers are, maybe those movies are out right now. And then in two weeks we have Roma, so that we have. We're very. I'm very excited for the Corona movie. And then we have we have Mogwai next week. And oh, we're not talking about that. Mowgli. <laughs> Mowgli, sorry, Mogwai. Oh my god! Oh, that'd be John such a great Favre, movie. John Favreau's. John. He puts M- M- Mogwai's in the Jungle Book. <laughs> Shere Khan just rips them to pieces. <laughs> no, he gets water on him, and then the gremlins. Yeah, I'm tear, sure. Tear apart Shere Khan. So rips the pieces. Brad, Benedict Cumberbatch is like, not again. You should go see that movie while drinking a beer. <laughs> <laughs>